Good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day. For those of you who have uh, already seen the uh, title of today's message, you'll say, that, that's an unusual title for a Mother's Day sermon, Grumbling with God. Um, unless your, your husband is a big grumbler or you're kind of tired of your children grumbling, um, we're just uh, not choosing this passage because it's Mother's Day. We're choosing this passage because we have been working through a, a series in John's Gospel. Uh, a series where we have been seeing how Jesus is the one who fills us, who meets this hunger and thirst that is uh, a part of the human condition, is a part of uh, our hearts as, as humans, and uh, we're just uh, looking to Jesus and to uh, how Jesus is revealed in the Gospel of John to see exactly how he does that. Uh, but because today's uh, passage really deals with this theme of grumbling, I, I need to kind of ask you, perhaps, um, whether you are a grumbler, um, whether you have a tendency of moving in the grumbling uh, uh, side of the spectrum when it comes to uh, dealing with some of life's problems. And um, probably to kind of give us some, a little bit of uh, perspective, we, we probably need to uh, look to one of the most, I believe, uh, beloved grumblers in uh, in in our uh, in our modern world. It, he, the the most beloved grumbler I know is Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, right? He is a uh, he's a poor Jewish dairy farmer living in Ukraine during the Bolshevik Re- Revolution, and he is famous for uh, the 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 way that he complains to God, complains about his life. Um, but he does it in such an endearing way, we can't uh, help but love him. Uh, in one scene, he's, uh, he's pulling his horse and his cart, and he's kind of rushing along because the Sabbath is about to begin, and he needs to be back home before the Sabbath begins because he doesn't want to be doing any more work. And uh, he, he's got an old horse, and his cart is kind of broken down, and it's just the kind of thing that would happen in his life. And just as he's trying to rush him home so that they'll be back in time for the Sabbath, his, uh, his uh, horse injures its foot. And it's at that point that Tevye looks up to heaven and grumbles with God in the, in, and says this, Dear God, was that necessary? Did you have to make him lame just before the Sabbath? That wasn't nice. It's enough that you pick on me. You blessed me with five daughters and a life of poverty. That's all right, but what have you got against my horse? Really, sometimes I think when things are too quiet up there, you say to yourself, let's see what kind of mischief I can play on my friend Tevye. I wonder if you've ever find yourself grumbling those kinds of words, having those kinds of thoughts towards God, having those kinds of thoughts to the people around you. Uh, later in the movie, Tevye grumbles with God again, and he gives his famous line, I know, I know, we're the chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else sometimes? That, that's, that's kind of his, uh, his approach to life. So, again, are you a grumbler? Do you grumble with God? Do you grumble about God? Uh, do, you, do you grumble about church? Do you grumble about other Christians? Do you find yourself grumbling about the sins that other people commit? Do you grumble about 
your family, your, your, your job, your career? Do you grumble about your neighbors? Do you drum, drum, grumble about the things that, that are a part of our life uh, that, that just, just become uh, too much for you at times? What we see in today's passage is that grumbling can keep people from God. It can keep people from growing. It can keep people from joy. It can keep people from the kind of life that I believe uh, God uh, calls us to. So grumbling is a problem. But the Bible here holds out both hope and a solution to this problem of grumbling that we all feel. But it's not the solution that people typically think of. This is not going to be the, the kinds of tips and pointers about grumbling that you might read in, in a self-help book. But let's get into today's passage. It's, it's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it in its entirety from verses 41 down to verse 59. So if you have your, your Bibles, we're in John chapter 6, and if you'd follow along with me, I'm in verses 41 to 50, 59. And I want you to see the hope that Jesus offers and also the patience that he displays towards grumblers. I'll start at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. <laughs> then the Jews disp disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true, true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now I want to start just by seeing what this passage teaches about the problem of grumbling. Because grumbling is a problem. It's a problem throughout the scriptures and it's a problem that's brought out in this passage. Last week we saw how Jesus had made some amazing promises. Promises to fill us, promises to give us eternal life, uh, promises to give us eternal satisfaction. 
And this is, these were promises that God had made to people who had already experienced some great blessings. These, these were the people whom just a day earlier had been fed miraculously. A, a crowd of, of there were 5,000 men and, and men and, and, and women and children besides, some, some 15,000 in, in the crowd. And he had fed them with five loaves and two fish, and he had done so spectacularly. But after hearing those promises, it says in verse 41 that the Jews grumbled about him. Might help to define our terms. What are we saying when we're talking about grumbling? It's not just saying they kind of asked some questions, they, like he was trying to shoot down questions. It wasn't just saying that there was some mild disagreement, like Jesus requires everyone to, to uh, always immediately think exactly the way he does. The word for grumbling here often has the nuance of kind of mutter, muttering under your breath. It's when you're venting anger. It's when you are saying things that just, just to, to get it off your chest, yes, but you are um, looking to express uh, displeasure and, dis- and disapproval. You complain rather than speak because you're not really looking for answers. So he's not shooting down a group of people who have come to him with some legitimate uh, concerns. He is speaking to grumblers, people who are muttering under their breath, people who are complaining rather than speaking. They're not looking for answers. In Philippians 2.14, God urges, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's saying that somehow the Christian life is to be lived not with this muttering under your breath, complaining, but with a, a recognition of who God is and what he does. I mean, you, you read a, a verse like this and you think of all, all things. Like, what is that? that that's got to include the, the dealing with the construction, the, the traffic problems that we've had in our, in our town over this uh, uh, over the construction season. It deals with the different trials and difficulties we find ourselves coming across. All things. Uh, the words there are chosen with a sense of intention and deliberateness. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. God's warning is even more stern in James chap- chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so it presents grumbling as this serious problem. It's a warning to us uh, about the severity of it. But let's take a look at the grumblers that confronted Jesus in today's passage. In verse 41, it says that they're grumbling because Jesus said, I am the bread who came down from heaven. It was a great promise that he was making to them, that he was the bread. But it it was also a tough statement for them to swallow. And, and we need to say that up front. It wasn't as if this was, he, he was just saying easy things that weren't going to confront what they believed. As we saw last week, Jesus isn't just claiming to give the bread of life. He's saying, I am the bread of life. He is making remarkable claims about who he is. He's claiming to be the one who can satisfy and fill us. But it's like that the, the crowd can't hear the good stuff. It's like they can't hear who he is claiming to be, the, the wonderful promises that he is making. Instead, 
they find the obstacles and they narrow in and focus there. And, and so often that's the pattern when we find ourselves grumbling, that we ignore the good, we kind of put, put the good down or minimize it, and we focus on the obstacles, the things that are, are uh, getting our backs up. For the crowd, Jesus claims to have come from heaven doesn't fit with what they believe. In verse 42, they say, is not, is not this Joseph, the, uh, or is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now how does he say, I've come down from heaven? See, they didn't appear to know about the virgin birth. Uh, they didn't know the, the specifics and the details surrounding how Jesus had actually come into this world. And they're looking at him in purely human terms. And if this was the first time that the crowd had ever met Jesus and they heard this come out of his mouth, you could, you could forgive them for saying, you know, this is kind of an amazing claim. This is, this is kind of a remarkable thing that he's saying here. It's a, it's, a, it's a man standing before us. How can he say, I came down from heaven? You could kind of forgive them if you didn't realize that these were the same group of people who had just seen him accomplish history's most remarkable miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. To have seen him feed that crowd and surely earned him the right to say some things that would deserve to be heard. Having seen that great a miracle, surely the people should have said, well, this is an amazing statement, but maybe, maybe he, needs a, he, he needs to be taken seriously. Maybe this claim actually needs to be considered. We would understand if they were just asking some clarifying questions, right? Like, help, help me get this straight. How does, like, coming down from heaven, what, what exactly are you saying? We would, we would be sympathetic to them if, if all that they were doing is just saying, now, I, I don't mean to argue, but aren't, aren't you Joseph's son? I kind of always thought that you were, you know, you kind of worked together in the carpenter shop growing up. I was, is that not the, isn't that where you came from? They're not doing that. And often when we're grumbling, that's not really our strategy. We're not asking clarifying questions. We're not humbly coming looking for answers. We're looking to vent our complaints. Grumblers mutter under their breath about things. They reject what they don't already believe. They aren't listening. They aren't taking in. There's not the humility to enter into a dialogue. And again, they don't really want answers. They kind of want to wallow in their sense of complaint and anger and frustration. And they're looking for someone to blame. It, grumbler, grumblers will also hide behind arguments as a way of resisting change. Notice what it says in verse 51. Jesus says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It says in verse 52 then, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, Jesus is inviting them to trust him. He's inviting them to, to commit to him, to, in a sense, uh, take him in, to receive him. And that, that is involving a personal cost. That's going to involve some kind of of call upon them and who they are and, and how they might respond. And at that point, it's like they've never heard of a metaphor before. Like Jesus says, uh, 
you know, says this thing about his, his flesh and his blood, and they're, and, and they're all of a sudden literalists, like, like they, they, they had no understanding that, that Jesus' words could be taken symbolically. All through Scripture, you have words used in a symbolic way. Uh, in any language, you have people using, using very, very naturally uh, metaphors and, and different figures of speech to communicate certain things. But in, in feeling that this conversation is getting a little too personal, it might co- cost them in some way. It might require something of them. All of a sudden, uh, I, I guess he's asking us to eat him in some way. Maybe we're, he's, he wants us to suck on his blood or some way. Like there, there is an incomprehensible uh, uh, sense that they, they can't um, understand Jesus' words. They know that Jesus isn't actually talking about eating his literal body. He know, they know that he's not actually inviting them to cannibalism, but it's easier to argue about that. It's easier to argue about that than to, to, to make it seem like they're actually resisting his words, like they're fighting with, with him and, and, and the invitation that he's making. And so often it's easier to complain than it is to change. Some of you are thinking at this point, Paul, you seem to know an awful lot about grumbling. How did you get this specialized uh, insight into this, into this area? And it, it, it's because I... I I have lived this passage. I am the grumbler in this passage. I have grumbled against God in every... Cons- they, these guys are just getting started. Like I, I, have, I have grumbled against God. I have fought with God in, in, in ways that reflect many of the different ways that I see, I, I see the, the crowd grumbling with God here. Before I became a Christian, I came up with argument upon argument, looking for ways to, 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 to somehow put this conversation back on God, to blame him for his, his, uh, his deficiencies, his weaknesses, his inconsistencies, and to keep the argument out there so I didn't have to deal with what was in here. It was my way of not dealing with the issue of faith in Jesus. And God has been slowly healing my heart of, uh, the, the heart of a grumbler that I have. But it's a serious problem. Again, grumbling keeps you from God. Grumbling keeps you from heaven. Grumbling kept this crowd from the salvation that Jesus was offering them. But grumbling will also keep Christians from growing. It'll cre- keep Christians from joy. It'll keep us from the life that Jesus calls us to. Are you a grumbler? If so, or maybe, it's, maybe you say, no, that's not me. <laughs> Want to argue about it? And Jesus would say, well, let, let's just back off for a little bit and let's look at his solution to grumbling. He diagnoses the problem, and in so doing, he shows us, I believe, the solution to the problem of grumbling. He starts in verse 43. He says very simply, do not grumble among yourselves. And I think that that's an unexpected response from Jesus at this point. 
it's unexpected because I was kind of expecting that after Jesus having said some fairly difficult things about being the, the, the bread of life that came down from heaven, I was thinking, hey, these people have kind of brought some arguments. Maybe you're going to give them seven ironclad reasons why you really, to prove that you really did come down from heaven. I was kind of thinking, maybe at this point, Jesus, it'd be a good idea for you to explain to them the virgin birth, and you didn't you weren't actually born from Joseph. That there was some, some divine things taking place at your birth that actually kind of give good, good evidence that you did come down from heaven. I'm expecting all of those things out of Jesus' mouth at this point, and he doesn't say any of them. And, and I kind of want to correct Jesus and said, you could be far more persuasive at this point. You could be far more convincing. And he just says, no. Don't grumble among yourselves. Why does he do that? He does it because, as I could testify, grumblers don't need more answers. At least not while they're grumbling. I can testify that in my life, while I was arguing and grumbling with God, the more answers you gave me became the more fuel for my arguments. They just gave me more material to work with because there's always something to play with. If, you're gonna, if your heart is set on grumbling with God, there will always be material for you. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to go through my list of, of seven proofs of why I really did come down from heaven because you're not listening. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't get through to you because you're not in a position right now to take it in. That, that may change in the future. You may, you may uh, open your heart and be willing to listen at some point, but now is not that time. You're not listening. People were, they were in the crowd were just looking for more arguments. They were grumbling. They weren't seeking. And so if you're grumbling with God, Jesus' response here shows me that it's not more answers that you really need. That assumes that God's the one with the problem. What Jesus will show is that grumblers need God's heart surgery. Grumblers need something to take place in their heart before any of the answers will actually do any different, make any difference. After telling the crown to stop grumbling, watch what he says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let, let those words sink in. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you understand what that means? It's saying that the human heart is so stubborn that if God doesn't get a hold of it, it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. It's showing us how stubborn, how resistant that we really are. If he doesn't pull you in, you'll never come to him. Now, at this point, Lee Eklov, uh, ref- he, he compares the human heart that Jesus is addressing here to a cat stuck up of a, stuck, a, cat stuck up a tree. In fact, it was his neighbor's cat who he uh, had come out one day and saw up, uh, stuck up in the tree, some 20 feet up. And his neighbor had, had, uh, uh, had, had been trying to coax the cat down but it had been up that tree for three days now. 
and the rain was coming down, it was quite cold, the cat was very hungry, and most people would, would feel a, a, a right sympathy towards the cat. I mean, if you like cats, some of, you know, I'm not a big cat lover, so I, I don't have the sympathy that, that this story re- really requires. But Lee did, and so he came out, and he's, he's, he's really feeling compassion for this cat. And at that point, another neighbor shows up with an extension ladder and puts it up against the tree, goes up and 20 feet up in the air, and goes and, and is there to rescue the cat. You know what the cat says, though, right? The, the cat, I mean, I don't speak cat, but, but at this point, the cat says, not, wow, I, I can't believe it, a, a ladder for me. You've gone all this way to come up the tree to save me. Thank you so much. The cat does not say that. The cat instead hisses, digs in its claws, and, and gives this, this uh, I'm going to eat you kind of face to him. And Lee said, that's exactly what we're like. That's exactly how we respond unless God does something first in our life. In fact, with, with uh, the neighbor, he didn't, he didn't just say, okay, uh, jump into my arms now. He had to put a towel over the head of the cat so that it was disoriented and then pry its claws loose from Uh, the branch of that tree before he could then grab the cat and bring him down. That's what we're like. That's what this passage is teaching us about the nature of the human heart. And that's why it is only as God will draw us that we will come. And the implication, if any of you find yourself at the bottom of the tree, it is because God has first taken the initiative and brought you down. You would never have gotten there on your own. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It does not say, There are a few of you whose heart is so deceitful that it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I can't understand it. No, it's saying the heart. This is the human condition. Our heart tricks us. It is sick. It is stubborn. It's resistant. Now, the Israelites knew this because it was so, so big a part of their early history. God had delivered them from Egypt. And all you need to say is, Israelites in the wilderness, and the next word that comes out of your mouth is probably grumbling. That's what they did. And it wasn't as if, the, it's not like those passages were given to us in the Bible to say, boy, those Israelites, they were extra special, terrible grumblers. They are there to, those stories are there to give us a window into our own hearts for us to recognize what, not what the Israelites were like, what all of us are like. To help us to see that the problem is this grumbling human heart, that there is a sickness there. There's a resistance there. But there was hope held out to the Israelites. See, God promised to do something new in their lives and new in their hearts. And Jesus alludes to it in verse 45. It says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now, that's probably not immediately clear to you what that means. And it's probably not immediately obvious why Jesus quotes that verse in this particular place. 
But it's one of the promises that God made to the Israelites in Isaiah 54, verse 3. It's the promise that a future generation would be taught by the Lord, that they would enjoy a a direct and a personal uh, connection with God whereby he would would get his message across and that they would uh, somehow receive it. It was, a, it was a promise that stubborn cats would be transformed, that the, that the nails would be, would be plucked out of, out of the, uh, the, their, their grips and, and that there would be a softness to their hearts, that there would be a receptiveness to God's teachings. And Jesus quotes it here as if to say, that promise is actually being fulfilled in your midst right now and you, by your grumbling, show that you're not a part of it. You're not in on that. You're, you're, you're somehow resisting. You're somehow like, it's like you're back in the wilderness and a new day is dawning. Those promises are being fulfilled and you're not a part of it. Then in verse 45, he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's saying the reason that you haven't put your trust in me isn't because you've come up with some unique problem to the Christian faith that that nobody else has ever thought of. He's saying, the reason you won't trust in me is because the Father hasn't drawn you to to me. You haven't heard him or learned from him. Otherwise, you'd come to me. Your stubborn cat heart still hasn't been fixed. And the implication is, instead of grumbling with God, and instead of me trying to present more arguments and persuade you, and us having a big, big back and forth to try and battle it out, like that was going to solve this, that's not what you need. It's not a problem of your intellect. You need God to draw you in. It's not a problem with Jesus. You need God to teach you. It's not a problem with God's plan. You need to listen to his voice. And so it's an invitation for us to be taught by him to be receptive to him, to open our hearts to him. And so instead of arguing with God, what we really need to do is to give ourselves to humbly listening to him, to receiving from him. When we grumble, what we're really saying when we're grumbling is, I'm right, you're, messed up, you're messed up, and you gotta, you got to fix this. And what Jesus is inviting the crowd to do here is the exact opposite. To recognize that, Jesus, you're right, I'm messed up, and I need you to fix me. Would you say that with me? Maybe we'll just say that, because there may come a time, and maybe later this afternoon, it could be this morning, it could be sometime next year, and you're thinking, I got this grumbling thing, and I think I'm grumbling with God, I'm not sure how to do that. Um, would you just say with me, Jesus, you're right, I'm messed up, will you fix me? Could, would you say that with me? Jesus, you're right, I'm messed up, will you fix me? This is the prayer that I would offer to, not just to, to all of you, I was not just a, something I would encourage to Christians. This was, if someone comes to me and they say, you know what, Paul, I would love to believe in Jesus, but I've got a I've got about 50 reasons why that would be just ridiculous. And I'd like to complain to you and argue with you about them. I would say, hey, I'm all for arguing. I've done it all my life. But 
um, before we do that, could you just take some time to pray this prayer? Jesus, if you're right and I messed up, will you reveal that to me and help fix me? Because if what the scripture says is true, then there is a problem with the human heart that only God can solve. And, and the cat on the top of the tree isn't going to come down just by arguing with the rescuers. He's going to come by humbling himself before them and receiving the salvation that they're holding out. You don't have anything to lose in, in praying a prayer like that. And as we sincerely and humbly bring ourselves before him, we experience his, uh, what, what he can do with that. So we've looked at the problem of grumbling. We've looked at Jesus' solution to grumbling. And finally, I want to hold out to you the hope that God offers to grumblers. Because for me, this is amazing. For me, even as I get to this, this part in the passage, I'm thinking, surely by this point, Jesus has kind of thrown up his arms and, and given up on grumblers. Surely his patience is worn out. He's, he's hung up his ladder. You know, this is just, he's not going to do anything more. Surely this is, this is, this is it for Jesus. But... He hasn't, so let's consider his hope for grumblers. Now, he said that the, the crowd has been grumbling about Jesus, right? They've been grumbling to Jesus and about Jesus. But after pointing them to the solution for their grumbling, in verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He doesn't engage the arguing. He points to what he sees as the 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 diagnosis, the problem, but then he just doesn't walk away. He holds out to them this great promise of hope in verse 47. The words truly, truly are literally amen and amen. It's, it, he's trying to, to have them realize this, how solemn these words are, how important these words are, how true they are. It's the kind of thing that you'd say when you're pleading con- to convince someone that you are telling them the truth. And then Jesus is urging the crowd of grumblers to believe. He's vowing, he's vowing that if they trust in him, they will receive eternal life. They will in, enjoy the fullness of life. And that's the word for life that he uses here, that, that full, rich life. And it's a life that doesn't end. It's not, it's not just for a period of time. It's not even just for this, this world. It is, a, it is a life that is endless. It is eternal. In verse 51, he says something similar. When he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So that by faith, when we come to him, not to, not to kind of just sign on for religion, but when we come to him for the satisfaction of our souls, believing that he is my bread, he is the one that fills me, that when we do that, he promises that we will enjoy a quality of life that will never end. Next, let's look at the language that he opened Jesus up to that charge of cannibalism. There's no question Jesus' words were provocative. They were, they were hard to hear. They were kind of made you stop and think. Look what he says in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Clear shock value words. They were to stop everyone in their tracks and say, whoa, what, what did he say? Like, what, what was that? 
I'm eating his drink? What? And as they were kind of reeling in that and thinking, well, obviously he's not talking about cannibalism. We're not, it's not like a vampire thing. So what is he talking about? And what he's doing here is he, he's just said that he's the bread of life. He's saying, what you need to do is to take me in. You need to feed on me in a sense, to keep coming to me for your nourishment. Now he takes the bread of life analogy, that, that metaphor, he stretches it now, and he wants to go in talking about flesh and blood because those were the images of sacrifice. He's saying, when you take me in, when you receive me, you're not just taking me in as, as a great moral teacher. Don't just receive me like I'm, I'm your, your ethics professor. Don't do that. That's not where the bread of life is. The bread of life is in the sacrifice that I'll make for you at the cross. The, the bread of life, the true nourishment that you need for me, not just once and for all, but also after that once for all on a daily basis, what you need for me is to feed on what I did for you and what here I'll do for you at the cross. When I give my body, when I pour out my blood, I'm doing that on your behalf. I become your substitute. And he wants them to know that that has to be the center of their, their faith in him, their relationship with him. That's where eternal life is. That's where the, the, the fullness of life is. That's where salvation is. He's saying that if you trust in his death to sin on your behalf, he'll raise you to life. He speaks there deliberately of, of the resurrection. And when we lose sight of the centrality of Jesus' death for us on the cross, when Jesus just becomes a, a teacher or a moral example, we have walked away from the promise. We've walked away from this kind of shock value, provocative metaphor that it's, it's my, my, my flesh and my blood. It, it's my sacrifice that's central. That's where your life is. That's where your fullness is. And that's where you need to come. That's where I need to come on a daily basis. I come to the cross because it's at, it's at the cross when my grumbling heart says, I'm tempted by my sick heart to say, I'm right, you're mess, messed up, get things fixed up. But at the cross I realize, no, here's the pure, spotless Lamb of God who died for me as a sinner. I'm, he's right, I'm messed up, and I need him to fix me. I need him to forgive me. I need him to change me. That's, that's where we find our life, and that's where the invitation is. Finally, Jesus promises his abiding presence to all who seek their satisfaction in him. After saying in verse 55 that my flesh is true blood, uh, my blood, uh, true food, and my blood is true drink, he promises in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. When Jesus' sacrifice at the cross becomes our daily sustenance, when we keep coming back to the cross, finding our nourishment there, it says, that, that is when we are abiding in Jesus. That's when we're resting in him, remaining in him, connecting with him, drawing near to him. 
And the promise is that's when he is drawing near to us. That's when we will feel and experience his presence. That's when we will know the nearness of Jesus Christ in in our lives, his power flowing through us. It comes as we draw near to the cross. But you're never going to get there on a diet of grumbling. The path from where you are and where I am to where he is does not come through a path of grumbling. He doesn't, doesn't even answer. He just says, stop doing that. The, the, that kind of complaining is not going to get you anywhere. Feeding on Jesus' sacrifice is the exact opposite of our grumbling. We recognize he's right. I messed up, and I need him to fix me. When we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness, he leaves us full. He leaves us with the hope and the joy that we have in knowing eternal life. And we know satisfaction. We know rest. Despite all that's going around us, he's he's still the the one who, who, who calms the storm. But we recognize that he's the one who fills our heart with our with the peace and fills the hunger that we all feel. If you're you're a grumbler, I want to encourage you to leave your grumbling at the cross this morning and to replace it with the humility to receive from him, to be changed by him, and to be filled by him. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to forgive our grumbling. We ask you to forgive us for thinking that we know better than you. Forgive us for not extending grace to others when you've given so much grace to us. Father, we ask you to change our hearts, to heal our stubbornness. We ask you to draw us near, to soften our attitudes, to strip us of pride. Help us, Father, to see how it's Jesus that our hearts most yearn for. It's his sacrifice that's our nourishment. Help us to abide in him and help us to stay near the cross. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.